last Friday, we got to celebrate our Christmas Eve service. And wow, we had nearly 70 people come out and it was amazing. We got to sing the Christmas songs and just have a moment in the presence of God, celebrating the greatest gift ever to mankind. And I began a very small devotional that night on the wise men and specifically the light and how Jesus called himself the light of the world, but how we flipped the script and said it to us as well. He said, you are the light of the world and the job we have to be a reflection of God's love and his goodness into the world that's around us. Well, I want to continue today the conversation of the wise men and the wise men uh, more so of what God has done for us in the sense of a holy discontent. The wise men came to bring gifts, but to really symbolically, prophetically declare over this young Messiah who he would be to the world. And he is the gift that God gave to us to take our place. God himself had a holy discontent to restore and redeem mankind. So I want to talk about that just a little bit this morning. Pray with me as we dive into the word of God. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for this weekend. At the end of this year to not just reflect on all the bad things and the chaotic things that have happened in our world this past year, but to be reminded before we enter into a new year that you are still on the throne, that you sent your one and only son into this world, that we would have life and life abundantly, that we would be saved from our sins, delivered, healed, restored, made prosperous, and to be able to walk as an ambassador of Christ, a child of God, to let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And now on this last Sunday of the year, as we open up your word to look at a a famous story of Christmas time, may you bless our hearts with an individual word to every one of the people who are here watching online and beyond. May you speak to us. May your presence be felt strongly in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, as I mentioned on Christmas Eve, growing up as a little boy, I loved Christmas time. I come from a large family, 16 aunts and uncles on one side, six aunts on the other side. Uh, We populated probably an entire state with just my cousins alone. Uh, We have a lot of family, which meant that at every house, it was loud and fun and lots of food and lots of memories. Uh, We used to go over to my grandpa's house every year, and he would set up his Lionel train set around the tree. And we always had that ham. Anybody else had that ham? That was not like the good spiral cut one, but that big block of spam looking meat and you cut on the, you know, diagonal and you put pineapple rings and whole clothes shoved in there. Anybody else do that? It's like an 80s and 90s thing, but we had that every year. And one year we were at my parents' house. It was our turn to host and all the family, all the cousins were over on Christmas Eve. And I will never forget this particular event, this particular Christmas Eve, because it was a tragic one. The reason it was tragic is uh, my cousin and I, we were playing uh, football inside of the house. Now, you're not supposed to do that, period. But especially on Christmas Eve when everything is breakable. And so we're playing football, diving for it on the couch and all that, just having a blast while all the adults are busy cooking and running around cleaning everything up. And we're in the living room by ourselves, and I throw this Nerf football straight at my cousin, And there's a reason I'm a preacher and not an athlete, because I didn't get to his hands. Instead, it went directly to my mom's porcelain nativity set. And the tragedy, the tragedy of that day is that, unfortunately, I decapitated Mary. (laughs) I mean, her head went clean off. It was clean off. And, of course, you know, I was probably eight years old at the time, and I panicked. I'm like, my mom is going to kill me. She's had this forever. 
So very calmly, I make my way to my room, nonchalant. I grab my Elmer school glue. And then me and my cousin, we take little Mary, lay her out, and we begin to perform surgery on her. And I do have to say, at eight years old, man, I did a great job. And the reason I know I did a great job is because my mom never found out. She didn't find out until I told her in my early 30s. And that's how long it takes a son to tell his Mexican mama that he done broke something all those years ago. I finally had the courage when I was in my early 30s to tell my mom about that little faint hairline across Mary's neck. That was my bad, my bad. But she still has that set to this day. And many of us have those nativity sets. Well, I'm going to burst a little Christmas bubble here this morning and uh, kind of ruin your nativity sets a little bit. We've talked about the three wise men. We've looked at this video. But the nativity scene in itself is actually biblically inaccurate. You know, look at all y'all learned ones. You're like, yes, it is. Pastor, preach on it. <laughs> well, the, uh, the shepherds were there, and they were one of the first human beings to see the newborn king, which is phenomenal because, as I mentioned on Christmas Eve, shepherds at that time socially were very, very low on the totem pole. They, they weren't treated nicely. They were disrespected. So the fact that the father would allow these shepherds to be the first to receive the blessing of physically seeing God in human form is incredible. That he would allow anybody to be used by him, those who would come to him. That it doesn't matter your social status or, or your history or your experience. God wants to use you if you are willing. So the fact that he showed to shepherds first is phenomenal. But the the Magi, the wise men, they actually weren't there for another couple years. Jesus was more the toddler before the wise man came to him. And we see three wise men, but in fact, there were probably hundreds of people there. Think about it. If, if you are traveling across the country with valuable perfumes, spices, and gold, you're setting up to get jacked out there in the middle of the desert, right? So they're not just going to walk around with I mean, these incredible gifts, you know, just wide open to robbers. No, they're probably going to come with soldiers, and there's probably more than, than three wise men. And the reason we think three is because there were three types of gifts that were presented that day, the gold, the frankincense, and the myrrh. And in these three gifts, as we kind of uh, hinted towards in the video, they were almost, from these wise men, a prophetic declaration over who the Messiah would be. And the Messiah would be, of course, king, and that's why they gave gold. Gold is only given to a king, and so in essence, they were saying, we are worshiping you, even though you are this little boy, you are the future king who is going to save us all from our sins. Then they gave them frankincense, which was a, a incense that was burned in the temple as, a, as an aroma that was pleasing to God. It was worship. So they're saying, we're, we're not just seeing you as king and we're just going to do whatever you tell us to do, but we're worshiping you as God. We declare that you are king of kings, but we also declare you are Lord of lords. And then the myrrh, which <laughs> there's one pastor friend I know, and every year he pronounces it myrrh. <laughs> the double R's in there. He's like, isn't that a funny word? He's talking, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. It's <laughs> just a funny word. But that, that spice was actually used in the burial process. You know, there's no embalming back in the days, and they caked spices over the bodies, and so there wouldn't be a stench and so forth. And so they were also declaring that we know you're king. We know we're going to worship you as Lord, but we know you're coming to not only live on earth, but to die. 
And so we are even preparing for the day you are going to die for the sins of the world. And so a very beautiful prophetic picture that we see there. Now, the nativity scene, when it comes to using this kind of picture as a preaching example, there's multiple ways a preacher can go with this. We can talk about how baby Jesus is in the middle of the nativity scene and how Christ should be the center of it all. Not riches and gold like the wise men brought and, and not our experiences like the shepherds, but Jesus should be in, in the center. We could talk about all kinds of stuff, but today I want to focus on the fact that Jesus was sent into this world. I mean, God didn't need us. He created us for fellowship. And he saw that even though God knows all things, he saw our lostness. He saw our hopelessness. He saw us completely ravished by the, the consequences of our sin. And in his great love, in a holy discontent, he sent his son to take our place. And there's no greater scripture than in Romans chapter 5 that gives a greater explanation of what that heartbeat of God really was. So if you have your Bibles, uh, go with me to the book of Romans chapter 5. It'll be up in the screens if you forgot your Bible today or you lost power in your digital device. But I'm going to Romans chapter 5. And we're going to read a couple verses here, beginning in verse 6. And as always, I'm reading out of the New American Standard. It's my favorite. Read whatever the Lord puts on your heart. But in Romans chapter 5, verse 6, that for while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one would hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man, someone would dare to even die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. So God saw that while we were sinners, before we had the opportunity to even go to God in, in confession and, and begging for forgiveness, God says, while we were yet sinners, he sent his son. God was moved from heaven. This God who knows it all, this God who has a plan, still could see the hurting of his children and decided to move, decided to act, decided to respond and throughout the Bible, we see people who saw an injustice, saw an outcry of God's people, and were so moved. Have you ever been so moved where you could not not do anything about it? You had to. There, there was something that compelled you to have to act. We see it throughout the Bible. I mean, we see Moses, poor, poor Moses. He lived four or three different seasons of his life of 40 years. The first 40 being trained up by the Egyptians. The next 40 running into the wilderness because of fear of what he did. And then the, fo the following 40 actually obeying God. But what led him into the wilderness for those 40 years of hiding was that he saw one of his own people, one of his own kind, being ruthlessly abused and beaten by an Egyptian, an Egyptian shoulder, shoulder, soldier. And so he ended up taking matters in his own hands, killed the Egyptian, and buried him. And news of it got found out, and so he fled for his life. But he was so moved by that and the injustice, he had to do something, even if it was sin. 
And later God would use that passion that was in Moses and use it in a way to, to let two and a half million people be set free from the bondage of Egypt. Like Moses carried that same attitude, even in the wilderness when he's leading all these complainers. Can you imagine? I got a 15-year-old. Many of us have multiple children. We have lots of complainers in our lives, but two and a half belly acres just complaining. Oh, the headache that Moses must have had. That's why he escaped three times to the Shekinah glory to get away from everybody. But on the mountaintops, he would cry out, if your presence does not go before us, don't take us from this place. Moses said, I want to do what you're doing, God. My heart beats for what your heart beats for. My heart breaks for what your heart breaks for. So don't lead us from this place unless you lead us first. He had his eyes fixated on him completely. And you and I have a holy discontent as well. You and I have things that move our hearts. It could be trafficking. It could be orphans. It could be mission fields. It, it could be multiple things, but it keeps you up at night. You dream about these things. It, you're angered when you see the injustice of it, and you are compelled to have to do something. And that's the beauty of being a child of God, that we want to obey him. We want to follow his will, but each and every one of us have a unique calling from God that we can step into in the way that our hearts move. But we had to be careful because if we're going to have a holy discontent, we got to make sure it's from God. And that's why it's so important that our holy discontent has to first begin with being content in him, being content in God. We have to come from a place of his presence before we can move out in what moves our heart. We have to be completely surrounded in his presence. Again, in the same way that Moses would only go where the presence would go. In the same way that they encamp in the shape of a cross in the wilderness where the tabernacle, the presence of God was in the middle, everybody faced inward. The presence of God was the center of attention at all times. We have to be content in him, in his presence, the greatest prize that we can have in life before we can have a discontentment in our heart to act out on. I remember when my wife and I were married 16 years ago, we had over 350 people at our wedding. We had a taco guy cater the wedding, so his poor little hands were flying because 350 people were hungry. And the greatest thing about having 350 people was 350 plus gifts that we received. It was a long day, and we got a lot of gifts. I remember my face hurt at the end of the night. Can you imagine 350 people wanting to take pictures of you and you having to keep a smile on your face for four hours? I think one cheek got cramped in this position for a week or so. My face hurt. We took off to our honeymoon, and we knew that back home in our little two-bedroom apartment, there was an entire room filled with gifts. And so we actually left our honeymoon two days early because we couldn't wait to get home and open up all the gifts. And we spent the next two days opening up our 23 blenders and our 14 mixers and our 15 toasters. And we grabbed all the receipts and returned and got more money. And I bought myself a huge TV. And we just we had fun for the next couple days. Well, one of my favorite gifts was a basket that um, a coworker of mine gave me. She, she served in a human resources department at our large church. And she got me a basket filled with Starbucks stuff, two cups and Christmas blend brew and, and uh, all these kinds of stuff. And so I had a brand new coffee maker, this beautiful basket. I wasn't a coffee drinker. So I remember that morning, Nikki was still asleep. I got up early. I'm sitting in my living room with all brand new furniture, with all brand new appliances that my family, my friends basically built our house and gave us everything brand new. And I had a brand new Bible. It was a parallel Bible. It had four versions in one. 
It was like New American Standard, NIV, Amplified, and KJV all in, in front of me. And I was excited to dive into that. And I said, well, this is a coffee maker. Let me, let me see what the hype is all about. And so I remember brewing this cup of coffee and sitting down on my new couch in front of all my new furniture with my new Bible. And I tasted that coffee for the first time. And my pupils dilated. And I saw God. <laughs> But I will never, ever, ever forget the sweetness of that moment, the smell of brand new Bible paper. I mean, that, that quietness before him in his presence. It really, it, for me, it was a duty before to, to have a devotion and to go before him. But after that morning, it became this experience that was sweet to my soul. Is his presence still sweet to you? Now, see, if we want a holy discontent, we first have to be content in God. But the beautiful thing about God is that he is inexhaustible. That means we can never really truly be fully satisfied in God because there is no end to God. But for the believer, we can grow and grow and grow and have greater depth and revelations to this understanding of the face of God and his presence. But it needs to be sweet to us. And when we are content in God, his desires become our desires. And our heart breaks for the things that breaks his heart. We become one. And the same that we heard in, in John 17, that we need to be one as Jesus was one with the Father. Coming to an awakening that we were once spiritual orphans and realizing that we are sons and daughters of God is one of the greatest things that we can ever experience. And when we realize that God has us on earth for a reason and he wants to use us, Something should come alive in us. Isn't it interesting that of all of God's creation, we are the only ones that can actually be discontented. You don't see a dog in the corner of your room lamenting over why God's not using him to his full purpose and ability and giftings. Only human beings are unsatisfied with the normal urges, the primal urges of being alive. We, we don't just want to eat and sleep and all that. We want to be awakened to a calling that's beyond this life, that's eternal in nature. And we could see heaven partner with us to unleash realities into this world that only come from heaven. And we can see his will be done on planet earth. But the question is, is the presence of God still sweet to you? How can we begin to care about the world around us if we first don't care about God? So a discontentment first begins with the contentment in him but also, uh, a holy discontentment is sustained by love, godly love. Uh, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, he says that if I do not have love, even though I can fathom all the mysteries of the world and all these other things, I am nothing and I gain nothing if I have not love. We need to be propelled by and motivated by love. And many of us, we lose that holy discontentment that passion, that drive, we lose our holy discontentment because of an unholy bitterness. We've allowed life to make us bitter. Our hearts have become hardened. And what does hardened mean? Well, over 60 times in the Bible, it talks about beware of having a hardened heart. Now, if you came up to me every day and just punched me in the face, I'm a brown belt in Taekwondo, so remember that. I might hit you back, right? But if you punch me, punch me, punch me every single day, it's going to hurt for a long time. But eventually my skin will develop a callus and you can hit me and I'm not going to feel a thing. I've become numb to it. We got to be careful because the Bible says our hearts can become that way. Our hearts can go to that same direction where life hits us and life hits us and there's tragedy and there's disappointments and there's betrayals and there's abuses and there's all these things that happen to us in life. And soon enough, our hearts 
are no longer sensitive to, towards God, but our hearts become hardened. And now we can't hear clearly from God. Now we're missing what God wants to speak to us. Now we're not being aware of his presence or turning our affections to him. Instead, we're just bitter. And I'm telling you, you're going to be sensitive to one thing and hardened towards the others. You don't want yourself to be hardened towards God and sensitive to the world. You want to be hardened towards the world and sensitive towards God. And it's up to us. God won't force that on us. But it's up to us to grow in a godly love, to allow our heart's capacity to be expanded. How do we grow in God's love? Well, there's a lot of ways. I mean, obviously, you can read the scriptures. You can listen to sermons. You can do all kinds of stuff. But one of the greatest ways that I grow in love is to go through some junk in life and to actually take the high road. To go through some junk in life and in the middle of my pain to take a five-minute vacation, a quick pause and say, okay, God, this is not fun. I do not like this. I'm moody. I'm in pain. I'm hurt. I'm off my game. My emotions are all over the place. God, help. But I'm going to get through this. God, you are faithful. God, I know you got an answer to this. But right here, right now, I need to have a lesson learned. Teach me, oh God. And as you have to go through it, say, what can I do to love my enemy? What can I do to change my mood? God, what can I do to shift the atmosphere of my heart? God, what can I do right now to have a better perspective? And he will teach you. If the scriptures tell us that, that you don't need to worry about what to say, because the Holy Spirit will teach you in the moment what to say, how much more when we're going through a trial that we can stop and say, Spirit of God, speak to me. Teach me. Let me gain a lesson here. So that as I finish, I'm going to finish well in this trial. And it's in those moments I see my heart's capacity grow. It's in those moments my godly love becomes more mature because I'm looking to him and not just trying to endure the trial, but I'm welcoming him into my trial so that I can learn and I can gain. So our holy discontent needs to be sustained by love. If we're not moving in love, why do you even go to the mission field? Why do you even serve that, that brother, that sister, if you're not propelled first by love? And then finally, a holy discontent is individual for believers. My holy discontent is different than yours, and that's a great thing. We need the diversity amongst the believers to accomplish his will on planet Earth, and we all have a specific gift and a specific assignment. But a holy discontent is so amazing. There's a book uh, that's called Christianity After Religion, and a quote from there says that discontentment is a gift because it is the beginning of change. It is the beginning of change. And each and every one of us have to go through those stretching moments in life where we, we are uncomfortable and we have a discontent, but we press into the things of God so that he can teach us and we can, we can step out in exactly how he wired us. I am so grateful that we're all not robots who have the same gifting. Can you imagine how boring life would be if we all did the same, if we were all preachers? We would never go home if <laughs> we were all preachers. We're all wired differently. But I had this, this calling in my life, and more so than God blessing me to be a preacher, more so than my love of teaching people their identity, I know that I'm on earth for a reason. And I'm not here so that my life can be comfortable. I'm not here so that I can go to heaven like, woo, that was an awesome ride. I'm not trying to just get to retirement. God put me on earth. I want to be used by him. I want to see lives being transformed. And the moment that I can't do that anymore, God, let me be with you in glory. But I'm here for such a time as this. We are here for such a time as this. I don't care if the only thing God leads you to do is talk to your neighbor. You can change your neighbor's world. 
You can make a phone call to a family member, even if you are, are stuck in bed. You can make a phone call and bless somebody. You can send somebody a text. You can change somebody's world with a word from God. I want to be, in to, to my dying day, I want to have a holy discontent. It's in me. I don't ever want to wake up and feel like, well, everything's just nice and peachy. All right. Let's watch some football, have a good meal, and call it a day. I want to wake up every morning like, this world needs the Lord. This world needs help. And God, you want to use me for just a tiny, tiny little part of that to change this world. And we can trust in a God who is faithful, that if he puts a burden on our heart, he will provide the tools and the avenue to accomplish what he has moved in our heart. God is faithful to provide wherever he, it is, wherever he guides. That's the bottom line. And I'll conclude with this little story. Uh, there was a, a young man who had a scholarship to play basketball at UCLA. But the Lord put on his heart that he was going to be a preacher. And he ended up becoming a, a megachurch pastor and a best-selling author and so forth. Lord put on his heart at a young age, you're going to be a preacher. But he began to follow athletics and his basketball career. Eventually, it got so bad. His holy discontent got so bad. He says, I can't do this anymore. I can't keep going to this college. I can't keep playing basketball. I need to go to Bible college. I need to get my degree. And I need to start preaching. So he says, Lord, I hear you. I'm going to obey you. I'm going to do it. But I don't have Bible college money, <laughs> so I need a little help with that, Lord. And he only needed about $2,500 to get started, to move to the city where he was going to start his Bible college. And he says, God, I need to trust you for that $2,500. So the Lord led him while he was in L.A. to go work at Gucci of all places. I don't know if you wear good Gucci, but good for you. I go to Mexico and buy gotchas. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it looks good, but I ain't paying that type of money. But he began working at Gucci, and he was dressed all in a Gucci suit, and his job was just to open a door and welcome people. Now, this holy discontent was in him, and so he, he felt the Lord say, I want you to give my love away to the people who come to this store. And this, this wannabe preacher, he said, well, God, you know this is L.A., right? You know, this is Gucci. This isn't a Christian bookstore. And you want me to talk about God? I'm going to get fired. And he says, do you trust me? He says, I do, but I'm also deathly afraid of people. And I don't know how to talk about my faith. And I don't know how to share what you're doing in my, my world. I don't know what to say to people. He says, do you trust me? He says, yes. So he's opening doors for people. And this guy gets out of a Lamborghini and comes up to the door. And the Holy Spirit says, that one. He says, oh, man. So he opens the door for this guy. He comes in, shops for about 40 minutes. And on his way out, uh, this young wannabe preacher, he said, hey, the Lord loves you. I love you. And God has great things for your life. And this man looks at him and said, what did you say to me? He goes, oh, I'm getting fired. I'm getting fired. The man goes to his car, puts his bags away, comes back to this wannabe preacher and says, what did you say to me? <sighs> okay. I said, God loves you. I love you. And God has great things for you. He goes, that's my office up there on the 11th floor. When you're done with your shift, you come and see me. Yes, sir. <laughs> he finishes his, his day there, and he makes his way up to the office, knocks on a door, comes in. And he begins this conversation with this man. And he says, that was a word that was right on and a word that I needed to hear. And I felt the Spirit say to my heart that I needed to bless you. Give him a check for $2,500. Had no clue that that's where, where God was leading him to go. I'm telling you, if we are just faithful to go with our gut and our God and the holy discontent that is within us, he'll take care of the provision. He'll take care of the open doors. He just needs from us is a yes, because he can't force that on us.
And so I encourage us as we wrap up this year and we're into this great Christmas time in the spirit, as we enter into a new year, it doesn't have to be big. It doesn't have to be marvelous. It doesn't have to be scary, but it does have to be God and him saying, will you trust me and us to give him the divine yes by the way he has given us that discontentment. So Father, thank you so much for my friends here today. Thank you, God, for the reminder that Christmas is, and it's not just this ritual that we do where we read the same story of Christmas every year and go through the motions and the church traditions. No, it's a time, God, to be so thankful that you came to this world to take our place and to not only just allow us to get a free ticket to heaven and to just bypass this world, but no, God, you said you're on earth and I want my kingdom to be expanded, and I want to use you. So I pray, God, that the fear that may be in this room, that it would be dispelled by your great love, by your presence. I pray that the hesitations and the doubts that were in this room, you would begin to bring revelations that would bring clarity and excitement and motivation. I pray, God, for the ones who felt like they're not good enough to be used, or they can't, or they're not as gifted, that you would begin to bring to them great testimonies of what you can do in and through them exactly as you have wired them. God, I pray for a godly confidence to the introverts, the extroverts, the quirky ones, the nerdy ones, the athletic ones. God, let us shine exactly as you created us to be. Help us to be more okay with who you have created us to be. Help us to step out exactly as you have gifted us and designed us. But help us, God, to bring glory to your name. Help us to trust you every step of the way. And now as we enjoy in the rest of this weekend and the week to come, however that may look, time off from work, time off from school, more family that's home for the holidays, let it be a blessed time. Let it be a time where we look to you more and help us, God, to prepare our hearts for all that you want to accomplish in this church and in each and every heart for 2022. We love you, God. We praise you. We thank you. It's in Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen. Merry Christmas. Have a wonderful week.